welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on July 16th, 2019 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was chemistry. Welcome James Barnes. The first time I kissed her, I was 24 years old. We were sitting on her couch, and as I was leaning in for that magical moment, she gently pushed me back and said, before we go any further, I need to tell you something. I'm never gonna marry you, she said. <laughs> I'm never gonna marry anyone. I was 24 years old and about to have a makeout session. I really didn't give a crap <laughs> if she believed in marriage or dragons or worship the devil. It was on. I mean, you know, we were two progressives. We found each other on Cape Cod in the middle of winter. It's basically a Christmas miracle. <laughs> she was a PhD in English. I was a horticulturist. The inside of her house was filled wall-to-wall -wall bookshelves filled with feminist literature the classics and i had like 12 books total which she had just about enough room for we made sense we made a lot of sense <laughs> after about 10 years together <laughs> it didn't really make sense anymore it was like every time I would hold her or say I love you at the end of a phone call, it felt, felt like I was lying, you know? And I didn't really know what to do about it. I felt lost in this relationship for months. She went away to see her family for about a week um, during all of this, and I decided I was gonna figure out what to do while she was gone. I. Uh, Decided to go for a run in her study, which was filled with books, obviously, and uh, I put on a Tony Robbins TED Talk. <laughs> Tony was yelling at me. You don't like your job? Change it. You don't like your relationship? Change it. You don't like your life? Freaking change it. I mean, I had that treadmill turned up to 8.0. I mean, I was flying, and the bookshelves were shaking the way they would normally shake if I had the treadmill turned up to 8.0. And Jane Eyre and several copies of Wuthering Heights came flying off the bookshelf. And then a bunch of other books came crashing on down around my feet that weren't the Bronte sisters. And they were like shooting off the back of the treadmill against the wall. And I ripped the emergency stop cord off the treadmill and I slowly rolled off the end of the treadmill and I sat down with the mess of books all around me and I knew that I was a romantic comedy cliche. <laughs> and that I had to leave. She came home and I told her that I did not want this life anymore. So she grabbed my hand and our gratitude jar, 
don't know if anyone knows what gratitude jar is, but it's this little jar where you write little notes on pieces of paper, sticky notes. You put them in the jar, and then at the end of the year, you read them all. And so that's what we did. She took me to the bedroom. She dumped the notes out all over the bed. And one by one, we read all of the evidence that I was destroying a beautiful relationship. But it just wasn't enough. A year later, uh, almost to the day, I am standing in a laundromat uh, on a Friday night because that's what happens when you blow up your life. <laughs> Tony Robbins doesn't tell you that. <laughs> and I'm just watching my laundry and the dryer go round and round, and, and I, I start thinking about her. You know, and what do you do when you start thinking about your ex? You go to their Facebook page. <laughs> Which I'd been really good about not doing. And her cover photo was, uh, was a picture of all of that year's notes from her gr gratitude jar, the year that I left, the year after I left. And I read every single one of these. It was, she was grateful for the love of her mom, grateful for the love of her cats, her garden. There was some random guy's name. Gross. <laughs> and then I, up in the corner, there was one that was hard to read, and I, I pinched, I zoomed in, and it said, I'm so grateful for not crying every day anymore. Fighting back the tears, I put my phone in my pocket, leaned against the double loader, and just watched my laundry go round and round in the dryer. Thank you. Good chemistry can be fleeting. So think about this when you're thinking about the story that you're going to tell because you haven't put your name in yet, but now you're going <laughs> to. Um, literal chemistry stories are great, too. And who doesn't have an antidepressant story, seriously? I mean, come on. This is Wellfleet, all right? Um, we're going to pull our first storyteller, and what's really important for you regulars, you know this, but you have to erupt for the first storyteller. It is really hard to go first when you don't know you're going first. Storytellers are sitting in the audience and they're like, oh, when are you gonna pull my name? You know, am I gonna go? Your heart's beating just like me on that damn treadmill. So here we go. <laughs> Lori, please come to the Mosquito stage. that lady not to let me go first. <laughs> she didn't make any promises. Okay. See, for one second, you thought I was Hungarian. Right? So I was speaking some Hungarian there. Lots of people are Hungarian. 
Peter Falk was part Hungarian. Joe Namath. Hungarians make a, a practice, a daily meditative practice, a thing about everyone who's Hungarian, and then pointing it out to everyone. Like, he's Hungarian. He's Hungarian. Among the many people who are Hungarian is not me. This is the story of how I, I learned this. My mother's Hungarian. My mother, with whom I have very little in common at all, is Hungarian. And she left uh, her Hungarian family as soon as she possibly could because she didn't have any chemistry with them. And she came to the US, and she met an American, and she became the most American person on this earth, and didn't teach me or my brother Hungarian. And so as I sought an identity throughout my boring Midwestern life, I thought suddenly, I can be Hungarian, right? I have the biology. And what's stronger? Like, biology should make chemistry possible, right? Is that what they teach you in school? I'm not sure. I had the biology, so I just had to, to meet other Hungarians and there would be chemistry, right, right, right. So I happened to live where there was a local Hungarian group called the Boschkola, or the Boston Ishkola, or School of Hungarians. And I remember this was probably 15 years ago, I went there and said, I am Hungarian like you, in English. And they said, do you speak Hungarian? And I said, no. And they said, you're not Hungarian. <laughs> and my biology was dashed. Like, and I just went away for 15 years. Like, oh, I guess this can never happen for me. Long story, lots of other things happening. Meeting a Hungarian friend who began teaching me Hungarian. I still pursued this biological imperative to just leapfrog over my mother back to our heritage and become Hungarian. So I eventually got involved in the Boschkola. And my story of being there is a story of, of repeated failures of chemistry. Because what I learned about being Hungarian is that it's very different from being a Hungarian-American, which is what I clearly was, or mostly being an American, which is what they saw me as. So I'll just give a few examples of failed chemistry in case you are pursuing some kind of cultural identity that isn't really for you, here are some of the signs. I painstakingly learned the Hungarian anthem in Hungarian. I would practice it while I blow dried my hair. So just like in uh, Young Frankenstein where she sings um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic while she brushes out her hair, I would sing the patriotic Hungarian anthem while I, did, I was ready, ready because this Boschkola starts with a big event in uh, September for Hungarian nationalism and when the music played, the person on the piano was playing, we all stood up, and I stood up, and we all sang the hymnos together. And I was, like, I was very proud, very excited, ready to give my all for this country that I knew nothing about. And uh, when we all sat down, everyone in my row, it just seemed like they had all just scooted their chairs down like one, one <laughs> fraction away from me. They actually moved their chairs away from mine because um, I had clearly not been singing with fluency. This was made especially clear to me by a later event that was even worse because I was about to, to have chemistry thwarted by a child. We're all sitting down to have some kind of horrible little lunch together. 
And I'm sitting at a table with this family and there's these adorable little girls wearing their little white blouses with the little embroideries and so cute. And I just thought, surely children have no kind of judgment about this kind of thing, right? So I waited, I bided my time. And then when we were kind of, when a mother turned away for a second, I said to the cute little girl, something like, Lori Vadjok, I'm Lori. And I thought I really, I had this, like, you know, for And she just did this. Until <laughs> 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 so she found her mother, uh, something that my daughter will now do to me just whenever I have embarrassed her. Just absolutely, just no chemistry happening there. My daughter, meanwhile, who is, uh, was 16 at the time, is taking off with this group. She comes sailing in. She just comes in and starts hanging out with the Hungarian scouts and making, she went to their ball. She learned these Hungarian dances. Everyone's really grokking with her, and there was just nothing for me. We were at the ball, and they were having a silent auction, and I bid on some earrings. I bid on some earrings, and at the end of the night, I won them, and the big boss of the Boschkala, Marian, came over to me and just said, so you got those earrings, huh? Oh, my name was on there on, on the list of people bidding for those, but I guess you won them. Well, I would have worn those earrings every day. <laughs> and then after a, a longer, even more meaningful glance, she just, sailed away, and I knew that my days at the Boschkola were numbered, and I knew that I was not Hungarian, and I knew that I was really just an Amerikai, trying to pursue a chemistry that did not exist. I would have one more run-in with Marianne. At the very end, you have to sign up to do uh, cleanup and snack making uh, for one of the Boschkola meetings, and so I did, and it was in January, and when I showed up, she came by and just said, oh, I didn't think you would come. <laughs> but I'll end with one success. What is, what is a great representation of chemistry if not baking? Hungarians love poppy seed, and I made a poppy seed pastry that I brought to some event that was having a big wig from Hungary who was there. And I saw this elderly man come up to the table and all the food's there, and my poppy seed kolach are there. And he picked one up. And he really, he got really close in on that. And then he just slowly put the entire thing in his mouth <laughs> and ate it. And then like took six more, something like that. So my baking chemistry stepped in where blood could not. I left one mark on the Boschkola, and now I'm done being Hungarian. <laughs> Uh, let's welcome John to the stage. John, J-O-N, John. So this is a story of psilocybin, the chemical, which uh, a lot of people might know is of um, uh, the chemical in magic mushrooms. I didn't know it uh, when I was a freshman in college, and I didn't really know much about magic mushrooms. But I'm going to give you a little bit of background first. I was a 18-year-old uh, uh, coming out of Minnesota. And I was going to school in upstate New York where the kids were a little hipper. 
and uh, a little bit more in the know of what was cool. Uh, my mom was a born-again Christian, and the one thing that she made sure that I was aware of was the slippery slope of drug-taking. And as any good 18-year-old will attest, you really don't listen to your parents all that closely. And I thought marijuana, of course, you know, there is only a, a limit on what you can do. But there I found myself in the fall of my freshman year being invited to my first Grateful Dead show. And uh, the, the people that I didn't know all that well um, said, well, to really see a Grateful Dead show, you should take magic mushrooms. And being a young uh, freshman and open-minded freshman, I decided to partake. And I have to tell you, um, it was quite a uh, beginning uh, introduction to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and I'm not sure how many people have been to a Grateful Dead show, but there is a, um, you know, in the back, there's a lot of people that stay on chairs and they do the Grateful Dead dance. You know, and it's, that was me doing the Grateful Dead dance, having the time of my life. Gary, Jerry Garcia looked about 40 feet tall. You know, they, I thought I had found my new calling in life. This was fantastic. Now, for any of the people that are Grateful Dead fans, they'll recognize that a Grateful Dead show back then was broken up the first and second set by something called Drums Space. And if you're not a Grateful Dead fan, you don't start listening to Drum Space because it's not really all that compelling and it's a little haunting. And this show in Syracuse, uh, New York in 1984 was a particularly haunting one. And so I got off my chair and was taking it all in and I felt like, oh, this is feeling a little paranoid and uh, you know, it wasn't uh, really going all that well. And then I started to think, well, not going so well and maybe my mom was right. And then you get a little paranoid and the next thing I know, my friends were looking at me and I was in a ball, you know, just unable to enjoy the music at all and just in my own little world. And the, you know, the sad thing about Magic Mushrooms, unlike drinking, is that you remember it all the next day. <laughs> and I remember just, you know, thinking like, oh my God, my mom was right. This was like the, you know, the slippery slope that she talked about. And the, you know, the, now I can, see that not only was it a slippery slope, but I've descended into the depths of like the Grateful Dead, all these dancing deal devils. Like, oh my God. Well, my friends didn't know what to do. Um, I, I was curled up in the ball for the second set and they you know, did what anyone would logically do. They call the medics and the medics take me out and you know, they put me on a stretcher and now I'm like, oh my God, I'm, now they're taking me to hell. You know, My mom is just like, <laughs> tried to warn me I wouldn't listen, what an idiot. And, and then it goes a little dark, but I do remember sitting on, they brought me to the hospital, and I was sitting on a, um, a hospital uh, bed, and the doctor was looking into my eyes, and he was you know, saying, well, he, you know, it seems to be okay, and I thought for sure this guy was you know, gonna do something bad for me, so I jumped up at him <laughs> and tried to you know, grab him and stop him, and you know, he's like, okay, didn't sign up for this. Put the straps on this guy. Let's just wait until it all passes. So they, now they have me strapped down, and I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, God, I'm in hell. This doc crazy doctor is going to get at me. And they assign this young guy you know, to, to look after me while I'm there. And um, 
And I'm bug-eyed looking at him like, oh, my God. And he's looking at me kind of like, huh? And I swear to God, to this day, we are looking at each other. And he went, whoa. And I went, and I went the, the next morning, the next morning I got up and I felt so bad. And I, I apologized to the doctor. And I you know, went to sign out. And I'm like, you know, what do I owe you? How does this all work? You know, I'll call my friends. I'll get home. I said, oh, you, don't worry about it. We, we called your mom. You're all set. <laughs> Only I never did cyclocyabin again. <laughs> Would Sue please come up to the microphone? Sue. <laughs> There, <laughs> there are two things. Uh, you're going to wonder where the chemistry is in this story. And the other thing is it's a story about snakes, so you might want to leave right now. And it all started uh, when I was a French major in college many years ago and uh, went to study in France. And uh, I live with a family whose oldest son, Bernard, who was maybe 14 or 15 at the time, um, was, um, uh, he loved reptiles. He, he was, he was a, you know, um, just loved reptiles. He had a pet boa constrictor, uh, and he would raise chickens to feed to the boa constrictor, which I had the, the pleasure of watching. Um, but we became friends, and uh, he and his sister Uget, Uget was kind of his accomplice, I guess you would say. And uh, so they would um, pursue their passion together, I guess you would say. So there, I have several stories uh, about this because I was kind of an accomplice too, I guess, in a way. Um, I, um, at one of my stories is that um, uh, I, my, my brother, I don't know how, but he managed to capture a couple of garter snakes and uh, so somehow or another, he packaged them up, I think, not me. And uh, I wanted to send them off to Bernard. So, <laughs> um, so uh, I was kind of naive. I went to the post office, and they said, well, what's in the package? And I said, um, a couple of garter snakes. And they said, well, you can't send that through the mail. So, uh, so I was getting a little nervous, because I knew these garter snakes wouldn't last forever in this little enclosed box. So. Finally, I went to another post office, and they said, um, you know, what's in the box? And I said, class flowers, <laughs> because I wanted to be sure that, you know, they, they didn't disturb the snakes. So uh, that was one story. Um, <laughs> um, another story was, um, was when Uget, the sister, came to visit at one point. Um, she um, she was wanted to buy things in the states that maybe you couldn't get in France, and um, so we went to uh, a store in Framingham actually and bought a Gila monster. I don't know if you know what a Gila monster is. It's one of these huge lizards. Um, so um, we were keeping this Gila monster on the porch because we didn't want the Gila monster inside. Somehow, I really don't know how she got that to back to France, but somehow, somehow she did. 
The, the um, well, <clears throat> I should kind of back up and say that Bernard and Huguet were, were so into this that they actually opened kind of a reptile zoo in France that they called Le Monde Rampant, which is like the crawling world. And, uh, and, and it was quite, it was, it was really quite a, you know, um, you know quite a, an interesting operation. Um, uh, in my last story, however, is another time when Huguette came to visit and uh, she wanted to bring some rattlesnakes back to France. So uh, again, we went out to Framingham and we bought some rattlesnakes. And uh, they were, I remember they were in a burlap bag. And um, this, this was quite, this was, you know, quite some time ago. And uh, so she put, we picked them up the day she was leaving. So we put the rattlesnakes in the bottom, or she put the rattlesnakes kind of in the bottom of her carry-on luggage. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, we went to the airport, and this was just when they were beginning to, um, you know, be careful about uh, s security, uh, but they weren't real good at it yet. So, <laughs> so I remember I was watching. I couldn't, you know, I was watching. I couldn't accompany her. And uh, she went up and she she put the bag on on the table, and the security guards were were <laughs> pushing their hand down in in the in the bag uh, to see what was in her. I don't know how she how anyhow she got through, and she was able to take the rattlesnakes on the plane and made it back to France. So, um, so the chemistry part of my story, I guess, is that um, Bernard, he was a strong, strapping young man, um, but a cloud from Chernobyl came over where he was living in France, and he, um, he got cancer, leukemia, he passed away. And I just remember saying to his parents um, how, how I remembered him in French, fort and souriant, strong and smiling. Aww. Let's welcome to the stage Kevin Gallagher. It went like this for the most part. Hi, Kevin, this is Heather. Uh, so look, a free four-day trip to the Caribbean, air hotel, all your food, you only have to buy your booze. Are you in or not? Yes, okay, good, be at JFK Wednesday by noon. Heather was my best friend in college, uh, but she was also a travel agent. And something I never knew about travel agents, get away, Kevin. Uh, knew about travel agents is that sometimes they get free trips and sometimes they get free trips where they can take their spouses with them. Well, this is when I went into training to be Heather's travel husband. Uh, I didn't know how much I would have to learn about being a travel husband, but I was prepared uh, for it. And at first it was kind of scary to sort of pretend we were a married couple, um, except that then I realized like I have never seen married people carded. Like, no one's ever asked, could I please see your marriage license? Uh, like, at rental cars, at a hotel, well, a hotel would probably be really scary uh, to do there. Um, you know, I, I don't even think the IRS requires for you to prove that you're married. So we didn't have any trouble being a married couple, which was just fascinating to me. So 
Wednesday, a very cold, frigid Wednesday uh, in February, I arrive at JFK uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning. I find Heather. Heather's got a colleague of hers with her, Dale, and Dale's fake husband, Fred. <laughs> um, and Fred happens to be Heather's brother. So we are an odd couple of couples. Uh, and what I didn't realize about this like free trip stuff, uh, which I've learned over the years, uh, is that uh, we were flying standby. So we could go standby anywhere this airline flew. Uh, we just, that was the only way we could get seats. So we decided on the Caribbean because it was only gonna be four days. And we went counter to counter to counter at JFK. And there were no seats on any plane, except for the Dominican Republic. Bingo, that's where we went. Now I have to explain that back in the early 80s, the Dominican Republic was not the vacation destination it currently is. Actually, it's actually not again because people die there. Uh, so in that in-between time. So back then, uh, the DR was pretty rural, uh, not very built up, practically third world, which sort of worked for us uh, because we had just graduated from college and we were raking in a big $3.35 an hour. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. So we were really probably designed more to be kind of uh, third world Caribbean travelers and not like Anguilla or Turks and Caicos kind of people. But the four days were amazing. Sun, sand, surf, uh, pina coladas at the tiki bar on the beach in the afternoon, you know, salsa dancing in the barrio till 4 a.m. Like it was just wonderful, just wonderful. And then it came time to come home. Well, we had standby tickets on the way back, so we go to the airport, and we were unaware in the four days that we were there um, that the airport was on strike. And so for younger people here, I have to explain that in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't really news. Like, you, you kind of didn't know really what was going on most of the time. Uh, we certainly didn't watch TV. And, and we didn't read newspapers in languages we didn't speak. And it's not like anyone talked about it, like the airport was closed. So they were only letting one plane in a day and one plane out of day, and those were for emergencies. Um, uh, or if you had like enough money. And we had neither of those, emergency or money. So we didn't get out Sunday night, and we didn't get out Monday night. And we all started panicking because another thing you don't know for you younger folks is back then, long distance phone calls were really expensive. <laughs> and you never made them from an island, like, because <laughs> they had to lay wires from the island under the water all the way to the mainland. And so they charged you a lot to do that. So our employers had no idea we weren't coming to work again because we didn't tell them yet that we weren't there. So it was pretty panic-stricken, but then on Tuesday morning, we get back to the airport, and I have to explain what the airport looked like. I mean, it's a tiny little airport, hundreds of people like storming the desk with all their made-up reasons why they should be able to get off the island. Uh, the only thing I can compare it to what, uh, was the uh, annual um, bridal uh, sale at Filene's Bargain Basement. <laughs> having, having been there, I, I, well, I stood aside so I wouldn't die, um, but it sort of had that kind of feel to it. And so we got to the counter, nothing. We watched the plane back away from the gate and move toward the runway, and it stopped. 
and turned around and came back. And a man and a woman and a child got off the plane. And the story was is that the, the mother had a premonition that the plane was going to crash, and so she refused to go up, and so the pilot didn't want her you know, yelling the whole time, so he just turned around and brought her back. So, so the airline attendant looks at the four of us and says, well, I can send three of you home. And we all look at Heather, and Heather goes, uh, uh, Dale, Fred, you go. Kevin will stay here with me. So they go tearing across the tarmac, up onto the plane, off to New York. And I'm thinking, okay, like I, now I'm kind of pissed because I have a job too, and there are three seats. And uh, I turn around, and Heather is sitting on a bench, slumped on a bench, sobbing. So I go up and say, I know you hate me. I know you hate me. Like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. My brother was just driving me nuts. He just kept yelling at me all the time. And Dale didn't want to be with him anymore. And I just, I just, I'm sorry. It's just, I didn't want to be here all by myself. Well, this is where, like, a travel husband actually has to become, like, a real husband. So instead of like yelling at her, which was what I wanted to do as my friend, I said, don't worry, dear, it will be okay. <laughs> and then hugged her. So after her tears subsided, she said, how much money do you have? And I said, well, I have $8, how much do you have? And she said, I just have coins left. So I said, well, what are we gonna, where, like, where are we gonna stay? Where are we gonna eat? And she said, well, you remember that couple that we met on the beach that said they were renting a cottage on, uh, right on the uh, water, uh, John and Jane? which we later named Juan and Hain. Um, I, she said, we could go back and walk the beach and maybe run into them, and then we could stay with them maybe. So there we go. We hitchhike back to the beach, <laughs> fully clothed, walking the beach all day, dragging our powder blue hardback Samsonite luggage. <laughs> but I will say that by sunset, we were having beers with Juan and Hain. Uh, so all was good at that point. But around 10 or 11 that night, when, uh, Juan says, uh, hey, Jane, we should take these guys snorkeling. And Jane goes, oh my God, yes, John, let's take them snorkeling. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't really want to go snorkeling. It's like night. And and so I said, you know, I, I love to snorkel, but you know, the thing I like most about it is to be able to see the fish. <laughs> and Jane said, oh, when you snorkel with us, you'll see everything, more than you could know. And I thought, and you might be thinking this yourselves, I thought sort of like, okay, this is gonna be like some Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, like orgy thing. <laughs> like it's just, you know, drug induced. You know, I just sort of thought, I don't wanna be here, I don't wanna be, I hate being married to Heather, I hate being married to Heather. <laughs> And then Heather says, sure. <laughs> I'm like, you don't consult with your husband about these kinds of things? So John goes into the bedroom and comes back with a snorkel mask, a big ass snorkel mask, covered eyes, nose, and mouth, and then this mouthpiece with the little tube thing. And they had rigged it into a bong <laughs> that you put on, and they didn't have any pot, so we used hash instead. And I'm not a big pot smoker, and so hash was even further. But I can tell you, I got really, really high. Like, high enough I could have flown myself home. <laughs> I was that high. Uh, that would have been a whole different Mile High Club thing, wouldn't it? Um, but I, when, we, when it came time to go to bed, I said, Heather, I said, I won't wake up, like, for days if I go to sleep. I said, I am really stoned. 
And she said, well, let's just keep each other up all night. So in the morning, we thumb back to the airport, same throngs of people all trying to leave the island. When we got up to the counter, Heather grabbed, it was the same airline attendant uh, representative, she grabbed his tie and she said, every day I don't get off this island, I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> and we flew home. <laughs> first class. My first and only time in first class, but I'll take it, I'll take it. And uh, so I have to say that, you know, I have been doing this uh, with Heather for uh, like 40 years. Um, and so uh, it's actually kind of timely that I was here uh, tonight, Vanessa, because I got a text from Heather this morning saying, so, week-long cruise, Caribbean, November, I know it's hurricane season, it'll be fine. <laughs> uh, 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 everything's paid for except your booze. Uh, are you in or are you out? And I said, I'm in, I'm in. And I sort of think like, you know, she wasn't really my real wife, but that kind of chemistry, you can't beat. Thank you. Give it up for Harry. Not crazy about following that guy. <laughs> so I, I mean, tonight um, we're we're visiting from uh, Toronto, Canada, and I thought I was coming to a show to watch other people, and so I feel a little funny. But anyways, um, I do have a a story, and it's um, it's a story of romance, and. Um, about six and a half years ago, finally, um, my marriage came to an end, or being together came to an end, and I, I became another person. It's like uh, the cage was opened, and it was a new world. <laughs> What's going on? And before you know it, I'm drawing up a profile, and the dating game starts, and gets pretty exciting and it's a lot of fun and um, except I, I mean something that I found though is when when you're online and you're and you're and you're dating and you and you see somebody and you go okay that's good and and you know I go up knock on the door and I see you know the woman answers and I said is uh, is is your daughter here <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know if you know this, but people use like old pictures. <laughs> so you you know it's they're lying. <laughs> Anyways, so I mean, there's a lot of stuff you know where where you're um, in in the dating game. A lot of things you're not told, and <clears throat> being out of the dating scene for. For many, many years, um, there was a lot that was new for me. So um, one day, I, I had a coffee date, because that's what you do, even though when I first started, I was taking everybody out for dinner, <laughs> until my friend said, are you nuts? <laughs> <laughs> you take them for coffee, and you see what's going on. 
So I thought, okay, that's a smarter thing, yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I was meeting for, I, I was going to meet for coffee, and I don't, don't mean to piggyback on the, on the weed thing, but I did, I had a joint in the car, and anyways, on the way to the date, <laughs> on the way to the coffee date, I showed up, and I was, I was a little bit nervous, and, and uh, I saw her, and she looked just like her picture. It wasn't her, you know, it wasn't somebody a lot older. Um, so that was great. Uh, but I was nervous, and I kind of didn't know what to say. I started saying things like, uh, like afterwards I asked her if she wanted to sing some Beatles songs together in the car. <laughs> I didn't know really, you know, kind of what to do. I was a little nervous, and... <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I said a couple other things that I've lived to re regret too. <laughs> <laughs> and she was telling me about, okay, so what do you do? You know, you start to get to know each other. What do you do? What do I do? And uh, she's telling me she's preparing this thing to sing in the. A, a, a religious song in the, in the synagogue. She was going to spending her time doing it. I told her, listen, um, you need a boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, I, th I think she took it under advisement. Um, so I was, I was kind of excited. I really liked her. Uh, I thought, you know, she was nice. I, there was things about her. I thought, gee, you know, this this could work. And uh, and so I asked her if she wanted to, um, you know, wanted to go out for dinner the next night. And she assured me that she was very busy, and that she was going out of town, and she had to pack. So she's not sure when she would be available. <laughs> So I hadn't figured out what that meant yet <laughs> till I got home. And then I, then I realized what it was. So I went on from there, um, and uh, I remembered her. Uh, but but um, so I, I went back on the dating scene, and I, a friend of mine was coaching me, and I was coaching him, and we were... What happened? What'd you do? What'd you do wrong? What'd you do there? And, and so things were going quite well. Uh, and I had met somebody who, we started seeing each other regularly, and, and it started to get a little boring. And, <laughs> and I started to reduce the amount of time I was spending with her. And she started to get nervous. And I was dealing with somebody who was calling me all the time and crying on the phone, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and it gave me, it, it gave me such, it, it, it was really, really bothering me, and I just thought, okay, you know, I gotta stop the, just the running for the, for the sake of it. I, you know, I gotta just stop. And I did. I stopped. I stopped dating for about five months. I started practicing my guitar a little bit more and reading a little bit more. And 
five months later, I, I, um, I got back on the dating sites, you know, the tapping here and there, and who do I see but Miss Too Busy right now, got to travel, got to pack. <laughs> so I thought I would, I would say to her, well, you know, I guess you haven't found your Romeo yet. And um, she responded, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> She responded quite positively, and uh, so we, we went, uh, we had our first day, we went for a walk, and then she said, okay, let's go back to your place. Really? Sure, okay, sure, we go back to my place. But what I found out later was, she just wants to know who I am. What do you, who are you? What's, what is your life? It's, so I thought, okay, that's, but it's not what I expected. Um, so, but anyways, so we started seeing each other a few, five times. I still hadn't gotten a kiss. About five or six times. And, and, um, and what happened was um, uh, we're at her place, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table. She's making dinner, and my ex is texting me that I have to take my dog for physiotherapy the next day. <laughs> and I'm trying to text her back. There's no way. I had stuff. I had meetings the next day. I, I, I couldn't do it. And so I'm frantic. I'm texting and everything. What I didn't realize is that she's watching me text with my ex. She figures... Is this still going on? What's going on? So um, but she said nothing. I went home, and the next day, uh, we, she was supposed to come over. We we're going to order some Thai and stuff like that. And um, <coughs> she calls me up, and she says, no, no. Um, by the way, I'm not going to be coming for dinner. I said, oh. Uh, she said, yeah, I just want to go for a walk. <laughs> and I said, um, uh, are we going for a short walk? <laughs> and she says, yeah. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> is that it? <laughs> I got I can I continue for a couple minutes? All right, all right, good, good. Let me punish these people a little longer. Um, Um, <laughs> short one. <laughs> Getting old. All right, fine. Um, so, so I realize that that's what it is, and and uh, you know I'm 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 crestfallen, and uh, but I take it in stride. Okay, if that's what you want, but I, you know I still I sort of send her messages and emails. Are you, Come on, like this is what it is. It, it wasn't really anything. It was the dog needed physiotherapy. It doesn't sound likely, right? But it was the truth. Anyways, um, so um, all of a sudden she sends me um, Happy Jewish New Year greetings, and I hope that your daughters are all well and everything, and and that you all have a good year. So I got this message, and I thought. If it's over, she wouldn't be sending me this. This, she's still interested. So I 
sent her a few messages and say, look, I'm, I hope you know that what happened was this and was that, and I'd really, you know, I think it's really nice. I think we would be good together. And so she writes me back and she says, well, I have to go out to Vancouver for about 10 days and I'll, I'll, um, I'll think about what you said. So I said, okay. And she was gone and I, I you know, while she was gone, I would come home each day looking for emails, nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, the 10 days are up, still nothing. So um, about the 12th day or the 13th day, I get an email, and the email reads, I've thought about all the things that you said, and I'd like the pleasure to take you out for dinner to discuss it further. Okay. <laughs> so at that point, I knew that I appeared to her like a guy with his tongue hanging out because I'd been pleading with her, come on, let's go with it, you know. And, um, and I knew that I couldn't just respond, okay, sure, let's go for dinner. So my response was to her was, okay, I'll go out for dinner with you as long as you don't take advantage of me. <laughs> Cheryl to the stage. Cheryl Hamilton. Thank you. So I'm standing in downtown Nairobi, Kenya, outside this nondescript building with peach-colored walls and a brown iron door. From the outside, it looks like every other ordinary building in the capital, except it's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. You see, it's the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Departure Center. It's the last stop where refugees from across East Africa go before they board the buses that will take them to the airports where they'll fly to countries worldwide. I'm standing in downtown Nairobi, Kenya, because 10 years ago, 5,000 Somali refugees moved into my hometown of Lewiston, Maine, changed my life forever. You may have heard about it. Uh, it was on the headline on NBC, CBS, ABC, BBC, pretty much worldwide news. Because as you can imagine, in months following 9-11, the media was looking for the story of the black African Muslims making with the white Christian natives. What will happen? For two years, they camped out on our doorsteps. Well, what happened for me was that I had just graduated college with international relations, expecting to go to Africa. But as my mom likes to say, Africa came to me. <laughs> and I was hired to welcome these 5,000 Somali refugees with two colleagues and make sure they found housing and employment and ESL classes. But most importantly, as my job description said, foster relations between the natives and newcomers, me. Well, that's a story from another time, but I will tell you that after 10 years, I had worked across the country sharing our mistakes and some of the things we did well, but there was always this nagging part of me that wanted to see the circumstances that Somalis lived through before they came to Maine. So here I am, standing in the parking lot, holding the hand of a young Ethiopian boy named Joseph. Joseph is about to be resettled to Seattle. You see, he hasn't seen his parents for eight years. They were ripped from his finger at gunpoint at the age of two. 
His family were farmers, and they'd had a particularly good harvest one year that they invited the whole neighborhood to celebrate over meals and dancing and music, except the government of Ethiopia thought that they were launching some sort of uprising, so they stormed the farm and took the parents. His grandmother that night, scared, took him and his two older brothers, and they fled to Nairobi, and for eight years, they'd been living on the street selling scrap metal to survive. But tomorrow, he'll be in Seattle. And he keep asking me, what is Seattle like? And I say, I actually haven't been to Seattle. Um, here's what I know. I know they have a lot of coffee, like Kenya. I know that they have a market. Yeah, they have a market where they throw fish at your face. And I think there's this thing, and I think they call it the Space Needle. It's really high in the sky. His face starts to panic. And I say, no, no, Joseph, listen. You're going to go to school. You're going to be able to play sports and you're gonna have a bed. And with that, we walk towards that brown door and I push it backwards and we enter the courtroom and it is bustling with activity. In every corner are families from Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Congo, all anxiously waiting for their last security checks to pass, their 13th security check. And as I look down, there is this long line of suitcases, seems like a mile long, and each of them on it has a family name their destination, and their case number. San Diego, San Diego, California, Columbus, Ohio, Paris, France, Sydney, Australia. And there, four suitcases back is this black duffel bag with a big piece of masking tape that says Lewiston, Maine. And I lose my mind. Oh my God, whose bag is this? I can't stop screaming, like really screaming in this room. And suddenly it is dead silent. Everyone is looking at the screaming white girl, right? And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And I find an interpreter and I bring her over and I said, okay, here's the situation. And she smiles and then she says, I've got this. And all of a sudden this like train of whispers winds its way through the crowd until it lands on a woman in the back row with a blue hijab. And I run back to her and I'm like, oh my God, you're going to my hometown, you're going to my hometown. She looked frightened. I tried to calm down, and I said, seriously, you're going to Maine, and I asked the woman to translate, and I'm like, I love Maine, it has mountains and oceans, and the schools are really good, the people, and summer camp, and theater, oh my god, I love Maine. I don't tell her, though, that 10 years ago, Lewiston was hard, that the mayor wrote a letter to the Somali community that ended up on the newspaper, and the New York Times, and all those media stations, that essentially ended with, Lewiston is maxed out financially, physically, and emotionally maxed out. I don't tell her how his letter attracted the World Church of the Creator or the KKK and that they camped out on the elementary schools I went to to pass out crossword puzzles that once completed celebrated people like Hitler and the Aryan race. I don't tell her that my best friends that I helped terrorists and that I was a mud lover. I don't tell her these things because 10 years later, it's better. It is not perfect, but it is better. There are 50 Somali-owned businesses, five Somali nonprofits. The high school soccer team, we won the state soccer championship for the first time in 40 years because seven of those starters grew up in a refugee camp in Kenya together, and they know what teammate means. But perhaps my favorite <laughs> is that those swanky hipster LLB boots now well, they're made by hands from people around the world, not just the loaves that look like my grandmother's. 
So instead, I look at her, and I'm like, so do you know anybody in Lewiston? And she says, yes. I'm totally expecting her to say Muhammad Ali, because everyone's Muhammad Ali. <laughs> but then she says another name. And suddenly, this screaming white woman is silent. She says the name of the first Somali man I ever met, who was my coworker, who told me about Islam and Africa and what it really meant to build community. And I remember, when she says this, I remember him telling me about being separated by his wife and children, and he had not seen them. At that exact moment, though, Joseph starts yelling my name, and I look around, and he's holding his backpack, and he's getting nervous because his name is called. And I was like, oh my god. So I run him up to the bus, and he steps up, and he's wearing this adorable corduroy suit from the 1970s that someone gave him so he looked good for the flight. <laughs> and then I turn around, and the woman in the blue hijab is holding her bag, and she's making her way to the bus with her three sons. And when she steps up on that platform, I looked at her, and I said, I'll see you at home, our home. Please put your hands together for Charlotte. Um, my story is, um, it's about my older brother. Um, I grew up with a really, really, really genius older brother and I feel like I tell this to a lot of people and they're like, oh, I have really smart siblings and my brother's like weird smart, like really weird smart and Growing up, I like we birthdays would come, Christmas would come, I would ask for an iPod or a bike or a toy or something that I wanted to play with. And my brother wanted textbooks or he wanted money for textbooks or he wanted things that he could learn from and things that they weren't teaching him in school because he was years above what we were doing. And so by the time we got to high school, he was so bored with what we were doing and I was just, I'm struggling to keep up and he's like sleeping in class and doing the best. And um, eventually he starts, he starts saving up his money from his birthdays. He stops asking for gifts and he's only asking for money. Um, and I think like, this is a genius plan. Rob's just getting all of this money. And I'm like, I should start not asking for gifts anymore and just asking for money and then I can do whatever I want. And maybe if you ask for a certain gift, you're not gonna get it, but if you ask for money, you can just buy it yourself. And so my brother starts asking for money instead of gifts, and he starts collecting chemistry books, and he starts collecting biology books and math books, and he decides to move into the basement of our house because there's not enough room in his room for all of his textbooks. And there's just gonna be more room in the basement and he can spread out. And then he starts, he starts his book collection of all of these textbooks that are hundreds of dollars that he's spending his money on to buy. And so he eventually um, saves up enough and he tells us that he's gonna finally spend his birthday money on something really awesome. We're all interested to see what it is and of course my parents are trying to like suss out whether or not this is gonna be a reasonable purchase for a 15 year old boy. Um, <laughs> Cause it's, this has been years now where he's saving his money um, pretty soon we have an entire chemistry lab in our basement. Uh, full setup, there's a Bunsen burner, there's glasses, like there's vases, there's, I can't, I have no, no idea any of the names, any of them. Beakers, those are there. Uh, <laughs> anything that you can think of, goggles, coats, gloves, 
if you go into like a high school in Monterey, California that like is decked out, that's what our basement looks like now. <laughs> um, but it's just a regular house in East Ham, so it's weird. <laughs> and um, he starts, like, he gets home from school, he goes right into the basement, he's doing shit that no one knows. And he's just making experiments, and it smells weird, and it's catching fire, and he's, he has a fire extinguisher ready all the time that my parents enforced, and it's, it's an interesting setup, and it gets worse. Um, <laughs> He gets older and he experiments more and he experiments more and then he's around 17 and of course my whole life I've told him he could not be more lame because of the only thing he's interested in is books and I think maybe his friends are starting to give him the same vibe that like come on dude don't we do anything other than science so he's like what what's weed about like what happens if we smoke weed and do science what happens then <laughs> so <laughs> So Rob starts smoking weed, and he starts doing science experiments in the basement. And like, of course, nothing can go wrong there. <laughs> and so we have a few fires that are put out pretty quickly, and it's not that big of a deal. Of course, my parents don't know. I don't even know yet, because I still think he's a square. And um, he, but I do notice that the basement kind of smells a little funky, and it smells a, a little different than I'm used to. And I'm still, I'm younger than him, so I'm not exactly sure what this smell is. And, um, but it's a little skunky. And um, he eventually, and like because of, I think he had a hookup with some chemistry teacher at school or something. He gets these like codes so that he can order chemistry products from like the exact like chemistry websites that professors order them from. Like you need like verification to get them because these chemicals are not for 17 year old boys. Like at all. <laughs> but somehow he's getting access to them. And so he's getting all of these really intense chemicals and some of them are like like 180 proof isopropyl alcohol and all of these other things that can be really dangerous. Um, but he decides He's gonna try and cook down his weed and try to make 100% pure THC oil. Um, which is like, okay. <laughs> so at this point, this is like he's probably 18, I'm 16, I've dabbled. And so I come home and he's like, Char, you gotta see what I made. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I call them droppies. And I was like, okay. And it's in this little like tincture bottle. And he's like, he's like, I know this is probably not like the best thing to do as your older brother. Like I should be like, I'm not supposed to be introducing you to drugs, but like you gotta try this. <laughs> and I'm like, say no more. I'm the cool sibling. Like of course I'll try it. <laughs> and so my brother and I try these droppies, and that shit works, for sure. And we, <laughs> it tastes like oh my, I've never had anything this terrible. And he has like a bottle of Gatorade. He's like, you just gotta drink this after. It's totally fine. You can't taste it anymore. Um, wrong, but we, we try these droppies and we're sitting in the basement. We're just like lying on the ground. We're like tears streaming down our face. We could not be laughing harder. I have no idea what at, but we're just having like the time of our lives cracking up. And um, my mom is not a super, not super into weed. She kind of thinks it makes you a loser. She kind of thinks you're not gonna get off the couch. And that, of course, for my brother, she thinks, I have this prodigy son. The last thing I need is for him to waste his talent on smoking weed. Little does she know, he's creating this genius stuff. <laughs> and um, he, uh, he ends up, my mom comes home, 
the two of us are lying on the basement ground, um, unable to explain to her what's happening, but I don't think we have to. She's pretty aware, and um, she just kind of shakes her head and walks away, and, and my brother had to take down his chemistry lab, and we no longer have a chemistry lab in the basement, but it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> Tom. Tom. Uh, two stories. Um, the first one takes place in 1969, and no, there's no drugs in this story at all. I'm sorry. There was a lot of drugs, but before the story started. But anyway, it was 1969. Um, the chemistry between people in this country was miserable. But that kind of misery can change just like that. I was living at home, I was 18, and I came home one night and my mother had found my copy of Jack Kerouac's On the Road stuffed between the mattresses. Um, the chemistry at the dinner table that night was terrible. And I said, stop, wait, I'm leaving home. Okay, I got up, left, packed a little bit, had nowhere to go, had no money, hadn't a clue, it was raining. So I called my best girl friend, Lindy, and said, Lindy, please come and get me. So she brought me home, and I stayed with Lindy for the summer. Now, Lindy Raimondo had a big Italian family, and we used to eat together every night. You had to come home for dinner. Her grandfather, Poppy, sat at the end of the table. He was really kind of an unpleasant old man. Now, at the time, I was 18, and I had, some of you may understand this, I had the number 145. Any guesses? <laughs> Those are my draft numbers, just about in the middle. So maybe I would get drafted, and maybe I wouldn't. But I knew one thing, I wasn't going to hurt anybody. So I, pursued the draft board to give me a 1AO draft deferment. 1A, if they drafted me, I'd go without a question. 1O, I would go without a question only if they made me a combat medic. And I'm still here. <laughs> um, all summer long, I was filling out forms and getting people to give me references that indeed I was a conscientious objector. I was a pacifist. Now every night, I would sit down for dinner with my adopted family, and somebody would say, how's it going? And I would say, well, I filled out this, and I wrote that, and so Poppy started busting my, terribly. It turns out he was a combat veteran, a Marine on Iwo Jima. Oh, there couldn't have been worse chemistry at that table. Every night it was like this. He raked me over the coals. How could you do this? Your country, your family was from Fort Lee from the 1670s. They literally helped George Washington. How can you abandon? You're just, and I would try and tell him, and this went on and on and on. Finally, I started getting letters from the draft board. We would like you to come in and plead your case which is only slightly more frightening than what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> and they, my 
Poppy just kept going, you have to go. You're gonna get arrested if you don't go, and then you're truly gonna be, you know, I just, it was terrible. They sent me seven letters, and each time I'd get one of these letters, Lindy would say to me, Tommy, you gotta go. They're gonna throw you in jail. And I would say, no, I can't. I just can't stand there and tell them, but you've done all the writing about it. You've convinced me. No, I haven't. You know, and it just went on and on, and I was just getting petrified that I was either that something terrible was gonna happen. And this guy just kept busting my balls night after night at the dinner table. <laughs> Finally, I get an eighth letter, and I open it up, and it's a draft card. And it's a 1AO. I couldn't believe it. So I ran to Lindy and I said, Lindy, look at this. I got it. I got it. And Lindy takes it and goes, Tommy, look at the back. Look who signed it. Poppy. He was the head of my draft board. He was, yeah. He knew how frightened I was, but he was going to find out if I was the real McCoy. And just like that, it changed. The second story is, mm, let's see, 69, 15 years later, my wife was pregnant with our first child. It was not an easy pregnancy. I didn't know this kid, but I knew my wife. And I was pissed at this kid that I had never met, that she was putting my, the woman that I loved through all of this horror. It was just the worst. Then she goes into labor. We go to the hospital, 26 hours of this god-awful. And I'm just thoroughly, I'm furious at this kid that she's doing this, you know, to the, and finally she delivers a baby and the nurse takes the baby and walks up to me and says, Mr. Schwartz, here's your daughter. And just like that, it changed. I said, if anybody with this little kid, I will tear the heart rate out of his chest with my fingers. Kayla, please come to the stage. Hi, everyone. My name is Kayla. I am a fifth-generation Cape Codder. My family grew up here and um, graduated from NASA in 2016. Now I'm at University of Southern Maine in Portland, Maine, studying social work. And so um, the story kind of starts there and kind of goes back to the theme around drugs and chemistry. As we know, we've had a lot of like fun experiences with drugs and recreational drugs, but um, a lot of local year-rounders would know that substance abuse is a real issue here, and it's a real issue, especially in uh, New England in the winters, as it gets very difficult here. So um, that's something I'm super passionate about, as I'm sure everyone here is. I feel like it, it um, touches a lot of people around here. So basically, what I... Um, I've kind of made my mission in school is um, to bring kind of substance healing to communities that don't have access to it. So the communities that are actually really suffering from it. So what I really started to do was um, the first semester of my junior year of school, I took off and I traveled to Indonesia and I spent a month in the jungle studying yoga and Ayurveda and how um, all the natural substances we use in uh, ancient traditions kind of affect our bodies and our chemistry in that way. And so I took that information, I brought it back to Maine, and um, I started doing recovery yoga for the homeless centers. 
in Portland. And if anybody is from Maine, I know we have a couple of Mainers here. Um, Preble Street Homeless and Resource Center is a huge thing in Maine, and it's one of the most expansive homeless resource centers in like the U.S. And so through their program, um, they have a Housing First program, which is for people who are chronically homeless. So three or more years of homelessness, um, they put them in a, in a um, home, in an apartment, in a condo, and that's their permanent housing. They don't have to be clean. They don't have to have a job. They don't have to end, have anything together. They just have a roof over their head, and then they'll figure that stuff out after they have shelter. So the idea there is we're trying to create a community in these apartment buildings where we have housing first locations. A lot of these people in the communities have experienced immense, immense trauma, substance use, chronic homelessness, and so it's a really tough population to work with. A lot of it is dealing with end of life care because of the um, stress that homelessness puts on your body. So I, a 21 year old studying social work um, from Cape Cod, small white girl go into this community and I say, I'm gonna teach yoga class. And so I go in and I'm a very new yoga teacher still and I go in and I try and do a traditional yoga class and I see this fail and I see it fail and I try and rearrange all these different things to work with these people who are struggling with addiction, who are struggling with basic health, who are not doing well in life. And so I keep trying to change these things and I keep feeling like I'm failing. And so every week I've got a few people that come back and back and sometimes I'll be teaching yoga to one person in this community of 100 plus and only one person shows up and I just feel like I'm not doing well. And um, there's one woman in particular, her name was Mary and she holds a very special place in my heart. And so she, um, she has been homeless for 15 years after a very bad domestic abuse relationship. She had a stroke from different substance use and then during her stroke she was violently beaten and she lost her left leg and all of the um, movement in her left side of her body. So she's in a wheelchair permanently and she comes to my yoga class every single week. And sometimes she just sits there, she doesn't even look at me, sometimes she sits and she looks out the window, but every week she shows up. And so every time, it's sometimes it's just me and Mary in the room and I always ask her, I'm like, what are you doing? Like I try and make conversation and she just wants to do yoga. And at the end of the semester, I have um, some of the participants that are constantly coming to yoga. I have them fill out a survey and for um, some of my school learning. And so I have them fill out a survey coming to what they got from yoga, how it was helpful, how it wasn't helpful, what they liked and what they didn't. And so Mary was one of the people that filled it out. She had one of the staff members at the Housing First facility help her fill it out because she is no longer able to write and um, communication is very difficult for her. And so on the last day of yoga class, she came in and she stood up out of her wheelchair on her one leg, took her arm, grasped her right hand and did a full sun, like half sun salutation on her one leg, going all the way up, all the way down. And if you guys are familiar with yoga, that's kind of a sequence that is one of the basis for yoga. And she stands up and she does this physical practice with me. And it's just me and her in the room. And I've never even seen her stand up from this wheelchair before. And she, she looks at me and she goes, I do this every single morning now. And so she talks to me and we continue to talk about how her um, recovery and her addiction is working. And she talks to me about the different things that are going on in her life. And all I'm thinking about is what I learned in school and my trauma 
um, classes and things along those lines. So we're learning that the trauma responses in the mind are constantly sending out stress signals to every little thing in, in, that's happening in their house. So maybe a beep from the microwave sends off these stress signals, whereas normally if a car cuts us off, we send out these stress signals. But they are sending them out 10, 15 times more than normal. So the use of yoga and the use of meditation that she has been doing with me, she told me that she was able to control those stress responses. And she does that every single morning now, and that has become her main coping mechanism. So when we're talking about the chemistry in the brain, she has taken this practice, this ancient practice from India and from Hinduism, and made it her own so that she can work through her own recovery and work through her own traumas. And that is something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, without further ado, let's invite my good friend Jerry Riley to the stage. So, um, you know, chemistry, there's a thing in chemistry where you can put two chemicals, two things together into a compound, a relationship that's stable. And, and it's totally stable. But you put a catalyst in there. You put something else in, and all hell breaks loose. Well, I was in a relationship, a stable relationship, with a guy I worked with, a boss, for about 15 years. And I, what I do in my real life is uh, I'm, I'm a software engineer, freelancer, contractor. And this guy contacted me, this was years ago, contacted me, said, I, I have this work, it's like about a month's work, would you do it? I said, great, I'll take it. I took the month's work. I came down here to Wellfleet, actually, Payne's campground. Down at the campground, probably a month later, I go, I give them this thing. They're real happy, and they say, well, you know, we'd like you to do more work. So it started, and I worked for about 15 years just for this one company. And in a lot of ways, this was like a, a dream job. It was really interesting work. It was well paid. I could do it on my own terms. What's not to like? Well, there's only one thing not to like, which was the guy I worked for. But now, I didn't have a problem. It's not we were button heads. We, we had fine. We got along fine for 15 years. But for those 15 years, he dealing with everybody else in the company, there was horrific stuff. It was terrible just to watch this. But I was cool, so I was fine. But after 15 years, I thought, you know what? I, I, this is, I, I want to get out of this. So I talked to my wife, and she is totally enthusiastic to get out because she, this guy's given her the heebie-jeebies from day one. And I said, well, if I do go, it's going to end badly. Because in all those 15 years, anytime anybody left of their own volition, it was a catalyst, which would set this guy off and he'd do crazy stuff. So I knew, soon, you know, as soon as I tell him I'm leaving, you know, the catalyst is dropped into the, the, the chemistry there. Uh, so I give my notice, I hold my breath, and I wait. And I wait for the other shoe to drop. And the days click by, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. I get all the way down to the last day. Nothing happens. The last day comes. They have a party. He gets up, says a bunch of nice things. I leave. We come down to Wellfleet. I dodge the bullet. I don't know how, but I'm, I am really grateful. So we're down here, summer's begin, begun, and uh, everything's great. A couple of weeks go by, 
and I realize I never got that check. There's a couple of weeks, two weeks pay that they owe me. And so I call up the HR person. I said, oh, I'm just checking you know, about that, uh, that last check. The HR person says, I, I can't talk to you. And I said, what, is there a problem? I can't, I can't talk to you. You have to, you have to talk to him. And, and she, I'm like, oh, okay. So I call him up and I say, you know, oh, Jerry, how you doing? How's the summer? We little chit chatty thing. And he said, so what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm calling up about the, uh, the two weeks uh, pay. I, 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 was, I, I called HR and they said I had to talk to you. This pause and he says, Jerry, you don't work here anymore. And I said, well, yeah, I know that. But as I understand it, you owe me two weeks pay. And he says, you don't work here anymore. And he slams the phone down. Now, and now he was not a yeller. So this is kind of weird. I get off the phone and I say to my wife, uh, that two weeks pay, we're never ever gonna see that. <laughs> but I'm gonna have some fun. So I sit down and I write this letter. And I, and I say, you know, I understand, from my understanding, you owe me two weeks pay. And when I inquired about it, the HR person wouldn't speak to me. And you yelled at me, hung up the phone, but gave me no explanation of why I'm not owed this two weeks pay. So the only conclusion I can come to is you're a liar and a thief. Now the thing is, I know this guy really well from 15 years and I know how to push his buttons. So the other thing I do is I put, I CC five or six people, five or six people who have left in the last year or two, who I have no idea if he's done this to them or not, but it's worth a shot. No, I don't send the letter to those people. I don't have their addresses, but I put this on here. <laughs> I send it off and whatever. So I'm kind of amusing myself and bingo, two days later, registered mail, this thing comes in, I have to sign for it. It's a letter from a lawyer and it says that I have been retroactively fired from a job that I quit two weeks ago. And like, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was a thing. But I'm like, that's kind of cool, you know, retroactive firing. And I'm like, and I'm like delighted. I'm thinking I'm making him mental and this is great. I'm gonna get my two weeks pay in mental torture. And I, I'm having a great time. But a day or two later, all of a sudden, I get served with papers from the sheriff I am being sued in Suffolk Superior Court for libel. Now, at this point, I freak out because this guy is a wealthy man. He, much like our president, has a long history of using the legal system as a weapon and uh, is sort of a legal bully. And his father is a, one of the most famous lawyers. You know his father's name, most of you, anyway. So at this point, I've gone too far I'm in deep shit and I'm freaking out, but I have one ace in the hole, my brother. My brother's a lawyer, he's a really good lawyer, and he's a character too. So I call him up, I'm freaked out. He, he, now he knows, he's heard 15 years of stories about this guy, so he knows all about this thing. He says, I'll take care of it. I said, but wait a minute, don't worry, I'll take care of it. So my brother calls up his lawyer, and says, hi, I'm Mike Riley, uh, and I understand your, your client is suing my guy. He says, uh, some ridiculous libel thing. It's not a ridiculous thing, it's a libel thing. Okay, all right, all right, I'm sorry. Well, before we start, there's a few things I want to tell you. First off, um, you know, if, you, if you're suing for libel, you want to go to trial, I'm a trial lawyer, that's what I do. I go to trial. So if you want to have a trial, let's have a trial. Second thing is, my client is my brother. And I owe him for all kinds of stuff. I won't even get into it with it. But what I'm trying to tell you is he has all the free legal representation 
he needs from a trial lawyer. And the third thing is, like, do you know what libel is about? Of course I know what libel is about. Well, okay, I'm just going to tell you, if we're going to have a trial, what would you do if, if you were representing somebody in a libel trial? The libel trial is about reputation. So first we have to establish the reputation of your client. Now, from what I understand, um, he's in all kinds of disputes with his neighbors, and I'm sure every one of those neighbors would love to come in and tell us about your client's reputation, because we have to establish your client's reputation first. And I know there's a whole lot of ex-employees who have a whole lot of thing, things to say about your client's reputation, so we'd have to bring them all in. And he's got, what, three, four ex-wives? I'm sure they all would love to talk about his reputation. And we're going to have to drag all these people in to talk about your client's reputation. We really don't want to do that, do we? So the next thing, my brother calls me up and says, it's all going away. I said, great. And he says, but you have to go in and you have to meet with him. And I said, no, 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 I really do not want to. He goes, no, that's part of it. That's the, the condition. You have to come in. And if you do, then this will all go away. And I said, well, all right. So we go down there, me and my brother, and uh, we go, go into the company. I'm like, I'm kind of, this is too, uh, making me really nervous. We get in there. It's him, his lawyer, a couple other people in this little crowded room. We get in there. He gets up. And I worked for this guy for 15 years, and he gets up and starts telling me, I, this, he's never really done a good job, and his work was always terrible, and we paid him too much money, and, and I'm like, and then he comes around the table, and he walks right up to me. I'm sitting down, he's standing up, and he leans over, and he says, you're a bad man. And I look him in the eye, and I say, you're a bad man. <laughs> and I get up, and we walk out the door, and I've never seen him again. That's my story. <laughs> Can we get the uh, first mosquito storytelling duo ever to come to the stage? Um, I think this is my chemistry story, but it's like a chemistry story inside a chemistry story, and it's like a, like a Russian doll, you know, where you open one and there's a little one, a little one, a little one. And I can't totally remember the story, which is why I have my best friend in the whole entire world, Allison Cochin, here with me. I'm Dina Dacey. Allison's a Welflesian. I am not. Um, and um, we are a chemistry story because we met when we were in sixth grade. So we were 11. And I wasn't really cool enough for you yet. She was like the coolest girl in the grade. And I was just it's so funny. <laughs> it's, it's so, so true. Funny. It's like you have people around who tell you the best thing about yourself, even if it's not true. But okay, it's go true. on with the story. But then the next year in seventh grade, she started to pay attention to me. So there's chemistry number one. So that was when we were 12, and now we're an unimaginable number that's in the 50s somewhere. Um, and Allison to me has been like my own personal chemistry set because. She's like my antidepressant and my anti-anxiety. She's my memory pill, all those things. And um, much later in life, so we were together forever, um, never missed a time in life. There was never a time when we were like separated and came back together as friends, just very lucky chemistry. Um, but unluckily, in 2009, I got diagnosed with cancer. 
and this is the beginning of my chemistry story, and you'll have to fill in everything I can't remember. Um, and I did, a, it was um, leukemia, and it was a shocker. Um, it was a mistake in chemistry initially. We were, my family was getting ready to move out of the country to England, and so I went back to my doctor who, I just, um, who had just delivered a baby for me, and I had my blood work done, because I didn't know when I'd be able to find a doctor in England and all that. And the blood work comes back, and he's like, blood work, totally messed up. Obviously, the lab messed up. Come back, let's do the blood work again. I came back, I went, it was my blood. So um, more tests, more tests, ended up, I had leukemia, boom, instead of England, it was right into the hospital. We were living in, in Chicago, and who was there the next day? Allison, so she, on a plane. And um, I was in the hospital, in and out that year, for a year, and I don't think, between Allison and all of my other friends uh, and family members, that I slept alone, not one night. And that was because I love having people around me and I need that, so they were there for me. Um, and that year of chemotherapy completely worked for me. I was in remission and it was a very hard decision to do all that chemistry instead of going straight into a stem cell transplant because I was an intermediate case and it was either you do the chemo or you do the transplant. They both could possibly work, but the transplant could kill you. So after much meditation, much, oh, for everybody, I finally decided to do the chemo, but it was simply just because it was something that came to me and they just said, do the, do the chemo, it'll save your life. Do the chemo, it'll save your life. But at the time, I, um, Anyway, they took my DNA and they sent it to the uh, bone marrow registry, the Be The Match, and they looked for donor matches for me. Um, and there were three, I was easy to match, and I guess it's because I'm like a through and through Jewish girl from Westchester County, and I think there's a lot of Jews on the registry, and well, it was- a separate registry for Jews, I believe, because there- <laughs> There are so I many. I say it, but it's the truth, because Judaism is not a religion, and you know, I mean, that's like more than a religion. Right, so here's the- So, right? from the so, Jewish registry, you had three matches. Right, okay. okay, so here's friendship chemistry, chemotherapy chemistry, and genetics chemistry, right? So there's Russian doll, Russian doll, Russian doll. Um, so, but all seemed good. We knew I was matchable, but I was done. I had done a year of chemotherapy and my family picked up and we moved to England. Um, and then a year later, I relapsed. And that was a shocker and a bummer. And it was effed up. And again, who was on the plane? This one. And, you know, uh, thank you to Wellfleet, really, for supporting her. Thank you to her husband, Ed, and her kids, who basically sacrificed their mom so she could mom me. Um, and, again, started doing the chemotherapy, but this time uh, I, it had to be a stem cell transplant. There was no, no choice. And they start going back to the people who initially came up on the registry um, as matches for me. And the first one, uh, a man, 
Um, and he did not pass his physical exam. So if you want to donate bone marrow, it cannot be in any way a detriment to you. Um, you are to be protected first if you're going to make such a such a sacrifice, and um, and it could be simply high blood pressure. Uh, you know, um, it could be <laughs> what what did Trump have that he got out of going into the army? A bone spur. It could be bone spurs. Um, <laughs> um, so he was off the list, and I'm. Yay, still in remission, but getting nervous because it takes about six months to find a person. So say you registered to be a bone marrow donor when you were in college, and it's 15 years later, and they're trying to find you. And then they find you, and are you still into it? And what, it, what, what does it even involve? And are you healthy enough? So it takes a while and a lot of people to... Um, contact and find out whether or not a donor is good. So first donor, no, didn't pass. Second donor, didn't pass. And I am now not in remission anymore. And um, my doctor in England um, basically told me to, um, to pack it in. He said I had three to six months to live uh, to get my stuff in gear. And you were there <laughs> again. And we cried all day. And, um, and then I said, that's not gonna happen. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got back on the phone with my original guy in Chicago who had then transferred to become head of leukemia at Sloan Kettering in New York. And um, he said, try this drug. And I had tried every drug in the world. I think my liver was like this size. Um, and I was like, okay, we'll try this drug. Um, and I did, and my uh, leukemic cells went down. And it was a fucking miracle. <laughs> so then um, we did another round, and um, they only went down just slightly more, and then he was like, get on a plane. So I got on a plane and I went to New York and I had a myeloblative transplant. So they, I had no bone marrow left at all. And again, this one's with me, in and out, every day, every night. I know. <laughs> and um, you forgot to talk about the donor. I'm gonna right now. I'll talk about. But the, the donor. kazoo is gonna. There's a kazoo part. Yeah, you missed that because you came after intermission. Oh. They're going to tell us. I was locked out upstairs. Okay. We have like one minute. Oh, that's what the kazoo is? Oh, okay. All right, so really quickly, um, my donor finally, after uh, first one, second one, third one, her name is Monique Aguirre. She lives in East LA. She is a Chicana. She is a Native American. Her boyfriend's name is Peanut, and he <laughs> is an ex-gang member. <laughs> <laughs> and she matches my DNA. On the Jewish registry. <laughs> A 10 out of 10 genetic marker match for me. Yeah. So, um, you know, and the funny thing is when years later I did a DNA test, so this was, gonna, this was the big crescendo, I did a DNA test and my oncologist said, cheek cells will... Um, 
always be yours. It's only your blood that will show a difference. So my blood type has changed. And I was like, okay, so I'll just check my cheek cells because isn't that weird? She's Native American. I'm a Jew. Maybe I'm Native American, really. And that would have been really cool. So I get it back. I'm Native American. I'm Latin American. I call my sister. I'm like, was it the mailman? Like, what is the story? <laughs> and bizarrely, unlike many other transplant recipients, not only did my DNA change, I mean, not only did my blood type change, so did my DNA completely and totally. I'm like a different person. <laughs> so, And I have to finish off the yeah. story by saying that Monique um, yeah. is a miracle in and of herself yes. because her grandfather was a Jew in a concentration yeah. camp. He was born there and he got smuggled out. And uh, so she does have Jew so in her. She, her. She does have Jew in her. Yeah. That's how she's a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> she was the baby that ended up in LA. Yes. So that's so it. That's the story. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs> <laughs>